All right. I'm Fred Lodge. It's my joy to be here as your pastor emeritus, uh, and my joy to be preaching today in Brother Jamie's absence. He's actually tied up and gagged backstage. It was time for me to preach, so I thought it was just time. <laughs> no, it's, uh, he's, he's ended up a wonderful week with family, and we're so glad to have him back in here tomorrow morning. We're excited about that. But we continue with our study that he's had us on, our summer Bible study in Hebrews. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. While you're doing that, let me just go ahead and, and demonstrate my age just to hear a little bit. When I was a little fella, my hero on TV was Superman. How many can remember those black and white Superman? Yep, yep. Always amazed me standing there, throw out his chest, and the bullets would bing, 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 bounce all off him. <laughs> then the guy would throw the gun, and he'd duck. I never quite figured that out, you know, why it was that way. But... Superman was, was called Superman because he had superhuman abilities, okay? He could fly. Normal people can't fly. Uh, he uh, could see long distances, x-ray vision. He had the super hearing, all these things. He was referred to as Superman because he was superhuman in all of those different ways. Now, I have from time to time heard people refer to Jesus as being Superman, but I want to put a stop to that right now. Superman was a fictitious character. He was a pretend figure, and he was worthy of people being, you know, admiring the possibilities and such. But Jesus was very different from that. However, the closest thing you have in the Bible of him being referred to as Superman is here in the book of Hebrews. And he's referred to as the superior man or the better man because he is better in every way than any other option that is out there in the world today. So to that extent, he is the superior man, the superman. Now, our study uh, is of Hebrews, in case you haven't already figured this out, is a deeply doctrinal study. It, it's, it's deep stuff. You've got to listen closely, and you've got to pay close attention to the Word of God. But I believe that that's really important. I believe that right doctrine results in right behavior. I believe that, that believing right enables you to live right, and especially in difficult times. Let me set the stage again of where we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to Jewish believers in Christ. Okay, they were Jews who've embraced Christ as the Messiah and their Lord and Savior. However, what happened during that period of time was intense persecution of Christians. And so these people who were Jews, and now they're believers in Jesus Christ, they're suffering immensely because of their faith. Now, they're tempted, just like we get tempted sometimes, to say, hey, if we're getting persecuted because of what we believe, then if we just go back to the old way of doing things, we won't be persecuted anymore. And this was a very real temptation. It's a temptation for us. If we're under persecution because we're living a holy life, a godly life in front of others, and we start catching that on the chin, we start being persecuted for that, it's tempting for us just to step back into that old way of life. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, there's nothing good about the old way of life. As a matter of fact, Jesus is better, and what he offers us is better in every way than anything we ever had as Jews being subject to the law. And so all of this book is defending that Jesus Christ is better than. Better than everything <clears throat> in the old tech covenant, the old Jewish ways of doing things. But for us, none of us are, well, I don't think any of us are Jews have been converted to Christianity. But we all have a temptation to go back to the old way. When it's getting tough to live a Christ-like life now, it's tempting to go back to the old way of life. So it does address us. 
And it's the same thing. Living for Christ is better than any alternative that is out there. So this letter is about teaching good doctrine, good belief system that holds us up in these difficult, difficult days. So find the second chapter of Hebrews. We're going to be there in just a second. When Jamie started our study, one of the first things he he looked at and the writer of Hebrews looked at is how Jesus is superior because he is divine. He is God. He is God become man, but he is God. And because of his divinity, he was superior, especially to angels. Why was that important? Well, angels in that day, just like angels today, are fascinating. And a lot of people had, you know, given a great deal of attention to them and even to the worship of angels. You know, that goes on even today. Uh, You know, I saw a, a a book in a bookstore not long ago, uh, how to communicate with your angel, how to worship your angel. No, no, no. Any angel will tell you, do not worship me. I am not worthy of worship. Well, why would they be tempted to do that? Let me teach you a little something. The word is cosmology. It's a, it's a good theological word, but you've probably never heard it before. But it means how spiritually things were. Okay? God is up here. Okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Lower spiritually are the angels, and then mankind. Okay, you got that? So here's the problem some of these Jews were having. Well, if God became a man, if he, if he is a human, then he left his place up here, and now he's down here, less than angels. So certainly we should look to angels because they're a higher spiritual order of being than mankind. Now, that makes pretty good sense. But the writer of Hebrews reaches way back into the Old Testament and brings out truth and reality. And the truth and reality is this. When God became a man, he didn't cease being God. He became the God-man. And so he did not surrender any of his nobility, any uh, of his power, any of... He was the God-man. He is one and the same, 100% God and 100% man. So, after that first argument, and people would still ask questions, here the writer of Hebrews came back with the second argument. And the second argument is this. Jesus is superior to angels and anybody else out there, not only because he's divine, but because of his humanity. Because of his humanity, he could do things that angels could never do. He could do things that no one could ever do. And so here's the reality. Jesus is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And this is not something that's unique to Hebrews. Let me remind you of the opening to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and that's another name for the second person of the Godhead, Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So throughout the Bible, this concept is clear, that God becomes man, the God-man. And upon that is built the doctrines Many of the doctrines to today, we're going to be talking about incarnation, we're going to be talking about salvation, we're going to be talking about resurrection, the ascension, all of these things together that are part and parcel and could not happen if God did not become a man and a real man. So, 
We're going to dive into this. You've got your notes there in front of you. Here's the first reason, first of four reasons the writer gives that Christ is superior because of his humanity. Not inferior because of his humanity, but superior because of his humanity. First of all, his humanity enables him to recapture our lost destiny. To recapture our lost destiny. What is that? It surrounds a word called dominion. Let's read second chapter, beginning with verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Angels are not going to rule the world, don't now, and won't in the world to come. God rules this world, and he rules the world that is to come, and we will co-rule with him. We'll learn that in just a little bit. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Oh, I love those words. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, but then crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we recognize you afresh and you as the absolute author of these words. And you are the very presence in which we breathe right now. And in your guidance, I ask you to lead us into truth. And that by believing right, we can behave right. By understanding correctly, we can face all the tr- trouble and the difficulties that surrounds us. Lord, help us to get our belief right where then we can have our behavior right. That's something only you can do. We ask you to do that, Holy Spirit, in the name of our Lord Christ. Amen. So, here's the first thought. There's a lengthy quote right here. It really comes from Psalm chapter 8. And it's all about this word dominion. Say that with me. Dominion. What is dominion? That means to be in control of. To be in control of. Now, go back with me into the Garden of Eden, if you will, for a moment. God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. And he told them, you're to have dominion over everything I've created. Birds of the air, fish of the sea, all of that. And, and Adam and Eve did. They had, they had control, they had dominion, they had authority over all of the created order. But tragedy happened. Tragedy happened in that Adam and Eve fell. They sinned. They said, God, I know what you say, what you want us to do, but we choose to do life our own way. And as a result of that, not only did they fall, but all creation felt the effects of that as well. So creation likewise fell. So man no longer had this dominion. We've been trying ever since to have dominion, to be able to to control the animals, to control the weather, to control agriculture. We, We continue to try to control all of that, but it's out of control, and we can't be absolutely in control of it until something else is done. So in the, in the foreknowledge of God, in the plan of God from before the, the world was ever created, the plan was for God himself to become a man. For God himself to become a man, to live a perfect sinless life, and to exercise dominion over all of the created order. And that by then giving his, his sacrificial life for us, As we believe in him, as he rose again from the dead, we receive his new life. 
And in the new age, the new world to come, we will share that dominion with him all over. Now, I know that was a mouthful, so let me just let that settle in a minute. Jesus had dominion over everything while he walked as a man here on planet Earth. He had dominion over the fish of the sea. Do you remember? You know, he, he told Peter, throw that net over the side of the boat. But Lord, we hadn't caught anything all night long. He said, son, do what I asked you to do. And he did. And what happened? The net so filled with fish that it took two boats, and they almost sunk as it was to get them all in. He had dominion over the fish of the sea. He had dominions over the fowl of the air. He had dominion over the, the wild beasts. You see that in his wilderness when he was out uh, off of the 40 days and 40 nights. It has dominion over the domesticated beasts. You remember when he came into uh, Jerusalem, he chose uh, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to break a donkey, but that is, <laughs> they'll break you first if you're not real careful, all right? But he just got on the donkey and rode it. He had dominion. He had dominion. He had dominion over the unseen world. He had dominion over spirits. He spoke and demons fled. He just walked up and demons said, oh, we know who you are. Why? Because he had dominion. He had dominion over the, the wind and the waves and he just spoke. And everything was quiet and still. He exercised dominion as the God-man, the God who became man. And in so doing, and winning salvation for us, that dominion is something that he can restore to those who believe in him in the new age that is to come. So the very first thing he did as a human being, he had to be a man to do that. An angel couldn't do that. But God, to become a man and live the sinless life, he could do that. That was the first thing that he did. Secondly, his humanity enables him to remove our sins forever. Angels cannot atone for your sins. Angels cannot cover or take away your sins. Only the Son of God can do that. Many of you in this room, if not most of you in this room, have memorized that precious verse from John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, but will have everlasting life. Jesus came for the purpose. He said, the reason I've come is to rescue those who are lost. This was Jesus' purpose in coming. And it was because that he was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God that he could sacrifice his life and atone for our sins. Only a man, a sinless man, could do that. Now, the word here says, well, I didn't read this, this second passage right here. It's beginning with uh, uh, verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of our salvation. Captain is not a military term right here. It means someone who pilots away and makes something possible. The captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering. That doesn't mean he wasn't already perfect, that he had to be perfected. No, that means to make something effective and accomplish something. So he was able to accomplish all he did because he went through all of these sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. Did you see that? Both those who are doing the sanctifying and those who are sanctified are one. Say one with me. One. I'm going to explain why that's so important here in just a moment. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, and here he quotes again, I will declare your name to my brethren, and, uh, 
in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This oneness is accomplished only by the blood of Christ. You and Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in him, there is a, a sealed oneness that happens. You and he have a unique relationship, a oneness. I, I, I would go so far personally as to say it really is we are of one blood because it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that oneness... You and I are brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ. He is your big brother, the ultimate big brother. And though you and I might do a lot of things to be ashamed of, he will never be ashamed of you and never be ashamed to call you his. Will you let that settle in for a moment? People have, made, have done things to you, shameful things to you, and you want to cast them off. You don't want to claim them whatsoever. Maybe some of your family members have done things or made decisions, and you, you just want to, don't, want to, don't want to claim them anymore. Listen to me. You cannot do anything that would cause Jesus Christ to disown you. Nothing. You and he are one. And he's not ashamed to claim you. So don't be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed to claim him. This whole thing is written to people who were tempted to be ashamed of him, to not claim his name, to not stand up for his name. And the writer is saying, look, he's not going to do that to you. Don't you do that to him. He's not going to disown you. Don't you disown him. And he goes on to say, not only are they my brothers and sisters, they are my young'uns, they're my children. When, when you come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, you are adopted into a family that cannot ever be undone. And that is a powerful, powerful truth. You want to claim and hold on to that truth. Christ gave up his glory as the eternal son of God to become man, packed all of the godhood that could be put in a man into humanity, and he was the God-man, and he unites us with him and one another. So he's able to forgive our, to, to, to enable forgiveness of our sins because of what he's done. What has he done? You need to come to a place in your life that you can admit to yourself and to God, God, I admit I'm a sinner. Just like Adam and Eve of old, I've chose to do life my own way. And I've stepped away from doing things the way you told me to do it, clearly in your word. I confess that I'm a sinner. But I dare to believe that you, as the spotless, sinless Son of God, when you died on the cross, it was to take my shame, my sin, upon yourself. And you died my death and you took my punishment. But then you rose again to give me your life. And right now, I'm asking you, Jesus, will you come into my heart? Will you cleanse me of my sins? 
I want to give the control of my life to you. Because I believe just like Jamie taught us last week and Timothy's been teaching the children, we're saved by Jesus' promise and nothing else. Nothing else. Every one of us needs to come to that point. How does that work? How does that work? Well, it works in number three. His humanity enables us to, to release us from our present bondage. Jesus came specifically to save human beings from their sin. That meant he had to take upon his flesh and blood himself, become a man, and only then could he die the death that you and I deserve. The word here is, it begins in verse 14. Read verse 14 with me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same. That through death... He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Let me pause here a moment. What is the power of death that the devil has? God, uh, Brother Fred, I thought only God would have had the power to give life and to take life. Indeed, that's the case. That's true. But wh what is the reality here? Well, Jesus taught us in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar and that he is the father of all lies, the father of all sin. And Romans 8, 23, 6, 23, we find out that the results, the wages of that sin is death. And so the linking of our sin to our death, he then takes that as a fearful way of controlling mankind. And he's been doing this for years and years. So what does it say right here? And release those who through the fear of death have been all their lifetime subject to bondage. What is it that happens? Verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angel, uh, to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Okay, what's going on here? I need to introduce you to a big word I'm going to use when I read the next passage of Scripture. So hold on tight. The word is propitiation. Propitiation. It's in verse 17, if you want to see how it's spelled. One of them big words of the faith. Don't be scared of other big words. They're, they're important. But let me tell you what this means. God is holy. God is just. He cannot and will not abide sin. He cannot and will not have fellowship with sinners in and of themselves. He can't. He's holy and just, so the law must be fulfilled. His holy justice must be applied. So if you and I have sinned, and we have, the Scriptures tell us for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there is this separation of God's holy law between us and God. So a, a bridge that we cannot, we cannot traverse. So God became a man. A real man, a flesh and blood man, but a sinless man, a spotless man, a pure man. To where as a sinless man, he takes your sin upon himself, he can do that. Because he is sinless. And what does he do? He takes the wrath of God, the just punishment of God, that we deserve upon himself. 
And the word for that is propitiation. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. It's not like an angry God that has to be appeased. It's not like that. It's a just God that has to deal justly with our sin. And so he does that. I, I want to I challenge you. Bertha Smith, years ago, many of you don't maybe only know about Bertha Smith, but Bertha was a, a very famous missionary to China for five or six decades, I think she was over there. I actually had a privilege of bringing her here to speak to you years and years ago before she went to be with the Lord. But she challenged us one day. She said, how many of you believe that God forgives sins? Most all those hands went up in the air. She turned to me and she said, what foolishness are you teaching these people? I said, okay. She said, a holy God will never forgive sin. He cannot forgive sin. Sin must be punished. And Christ took our punishment. That's propitiation. That's what that means. Christ took the holy wrath of a just God upon himself so you and I would know the tender, loving mercy of God and be adopted into his tremendous family. That's what that word means. Now let's read that word. It's in verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who likewise are tempted. So by making this kind of sacrifice, he became our great high priest. Jump to the last uh, fourth reason. In his humanity, he enables us to release him to release us from our present body. Oh, I just did them. In his humanity, enables us to restore us in times of failure. What was it the priest did in the Old Testament? The priest stood between sinful man and holy God to seek to bring them together. But how could he do that? God, God could not abide sin, sin and, and sinful people. They were, they were unrighteous. They couldn't enter the presence of holy God. How did he do that? Well, the priest could only do that inside the Holy of Holies, standing at the Ark of the Covenant, and on the top of that covenant was called the Bema, the mercy seat. And what did he do? He took the blood of a spotless lamb. He would go in there and sprinkle it on the top of the mercy seat. And that was a sacrifice for man's sin. And because the sin had been covered, he could reach to sinful man and holy God and intercede and bring them together based on the sacrifice. Jesus is our great high priest because it's his blood that not only covers but removes our sin. And because we are made in, and wear His righteousness, because we inherit His holiness, He can take us and bring us into the presence of the Almighty as our great high priest. That is the work of Him standing between the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man. As a high priest, what else does he do as a high priest? Well, as a high priest, the Scripture says 
the priest would also intercede for the people. What does it mean? It means praying for them, standing in the gap for them. Is that something Jesus does? Yes. The Scripture says he is always living to make intercession for you and I. So as our high priest, he's always there interceding with the Father. Why? Because Satan's crying out, Fred Lodge is a sorry, no good bum! And Jesus says, Father, that's true. But I died to cover that sin. And he is robed in my righteousness. And thereby he is your child. See, he's, he's that high priest that is always there for the Father interceding. What else does he do? He, he and Holy Spirit together, they, they make our requests. They take our prayers. Sometimes, you know, I don't know how to pray. I mean, I, I do, and, and I, I love being in prayer, and I love fellowshipping with the Lord, but... Who knows the right words to say? I mean, our deacons ask me from time to time, I don't, I don't know if I know what to say in this situation or that situation. Let me tell you something. Holy Spirit interprets even your agonizing groans to the throne of God with absolute perfection. So when you don't know what to pray or how to pray, your high priest is there praying for you, praying with you, interpreting your needs to the throne of the Almighty Father perfectly. He is that great and wonderful high priest. Now, what's this got to do with, with the setting? Well, if you have this high priest that has done all of these things, why would you go back into an old legal system that had you in bondage? Why would you go back to an old way of life after you've come to the, know the new way of life? And so the writer is saying, listen, you need to realize there's nothing back there in the way you used to live that is going to satisfy you like what you have right now in Jesus Christ. And in him, we have this high priest that can enable us to go through all of these terrible times we're going through. How is that? Let me tell you what else Hebrews is going to tell us about this high priest. He says, Jesus Christ has been tempted in every single way, just like you and I have, yet without sin. There's no situation you'll find yourself in that Jesus hadn't been in a situation like that. And because he's been there, and because he's overcome that, Who better is in a position to help you overcome that in your life right now? Jesus knew what it was to be a helpless child. To grow up, to go through adolescence, God help us. He knew what it was to be hungry, to be thirsty, to have the pressures literally of the world on top of him. He knew what it was to be ridiculed and made fun of. He knew what it was like to suffer for speaking truth. There's nothing you and I will ever go through that Christ has not already gone through and has come forth victorious. Now, if that's true, don't you want to talk to that guy? Don't you want to know how he did it? 
Don't you want to know what power that he can give you to handle your life? Yes. He is that super man, superior man. And as our high priest, he enables us to do four things. Or he does four things for us. In your notes, ready to write them down? Very quickly. I come to him when I have gotten my life so messed up. And he will refocus my life on him. Write that down. He will refocus my life on him. It's not about what you can do. It's what about he's already done. And Peter's a supreme example of this. He saw Jesus coming on that stormy night, walking on the sea. And he said, Lord, if it's really you, let me come and, and walk on the water with you. Jesus said, come on. But what was it he had to do? What, what was it he had to do? He had to keep his eyes laser-focused on Jesus. If he started looking at, 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 at the waves coming over here and the boisterous wind coming at him over here, then and when he did that, what happened? Down he goes. Of course, aren't you glad Jesus didn't leave him there? reached right down there and got him by the hand and picked him up, already acting as our high priest. There are times that you and I need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I have gotten so distracted by all of the crazy stuff around me. This world is putting such pressure on me. Will you refocus me, a laser focus just on you to where I can handle this life around me? Secondly, as our great high priest, he can enable me to regain victory over sin. Romans tells us that in Jesus Christ, in him living in him and, and working in him and praying in him, that we can be more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. If he's been tempted in every way that I've been tempted, I can go to him and he can tell me. You know what he already tells me in his word? He says, Fred, there's no temptation that's overcome you that's not common to everybody else who's ever lived on planet Earth. That's my paraphrase. Now, I admit that. But every time you're tempted, I'm going to provide a means for you to endure or a way for you to escape. Now, you just either have to take my provision to endure or you're going to have to take my exit when I show it to you. But he said, I've been there. I've been there. There's nothing you're going to go through that I haven't been there. And I'm going to show you how to endure that. Third, he can remove my fear of the penalty of death. Listen to me very carefully. You have every reason to fear the process of dying. That can be very unpleasant. It can be very painful. But you have no reason to fear death itself. Death is a doorway that takes you out of one room and into another. Death takes you out of this world and into the very presence of Christ. And when you believe that, when you got that doctrine clear, then you can do like Paul, and you can face those who are ready to take your life, that are threatening to kill you, and you can say, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? I tell you where the victory is. It comes through Jesus Christ, my Lord. How can he say that? 
How could he say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? How could he say that? Because he knew who holds his life. And that the process of death might be scary. That's okay. Jesus went through a horrible process of dying. Do you think he can walk with me and you through ours? Yeah. But don't fear death. Death can be a welcome friend. Don't be afraid of that. That takes, that takes the fangs out of Satan's snake all by itself. He removes that fear. And finally, reassure me of Christ's love for me. He, my great high priest, can reassure me of God's great love for me. I, I want to jump for a moment to something. Jamie will get to later, unless I can tie him up again and get to preach this one. Anyway, in Hebrews 13, 5, there's a precious promise where Holy Spirit, speaking for God himself, says these words in the English language. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that's great. But we can't always, in English, translate from one language to another word for word because it gets too wooden and hard to handle. So what I need you to know are there are three negatives on this side and three negatives on the other side that when you put them together, you get the full impact of what is being said here. So I'm going to put those negatives into the sentence. Listen to me now. God says, I will never, not ever, under any circumstance, will I ever abandon you. Neither will I ever, for any reason, ever orphan you or give up on you. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I need to hear that sometimes. I need to hear that I hadn't screwed up so bad that God's going to throw me out. I, I need to know, and that's not just in Hebrews, it's, it's in the Gospel of John also when, when Jesus said, those who, who I have, I, I put in my hand and I hold them in this iron grip and the Father takes his hand and put it over my hand and together in that whole grip and nothing in all creation can take you out of our hand. that minister to where you are? Listen, once you come to Jesus Christ and you've been adopted into his family, you're one blood with him, you're his child, you're his brother, you're his sister, hell has no weapon that can separate you from that relationship. So where are you today? These verses, though they're Kind of difficult to grasp, I understand that. They point to these three things. Some, somebody here may need to say, God, I need you to refocus my life today. I've been far too focused on circumstances around me. I need to refocus on you. Will you do that for me? God, I need to regain my victory over sin. I've given in to temptation, but I dare to believe what I've heard today about you and that you can bring victory into my life if I just listen to you and draw from your strength. Maybe you need to come and just say, God, I need for you to remove from me this fear of death. I am, I am so afraid. He didn't want you to live in fear. He wants you to live in faith. Maybe you need to come and say, God, will you just assure me of your love for me? Do you just let me know one more time that no matter how bad I may mess up, you're never going to let me out of your hand.
In a few moments, Caleb and our band are going to start to play. and We're going to have a, a time of an invitation. An invitation is just that. It's an invitation for you to come and do business with God. You can do that where you sit. I understand that. But there's something mighty special about coming down to this altar and handling one of these things. And it may be that what you need is to initiate a relationship with God. You've never opened yourself to him. You've never admitted that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You've never understood what Jesus has done for you and how to appropriate that into your life. Will you come talk to me and allow me the privilege of helping you to understand that? Father God, in these next few moments, I ask you to release Holy Spirit to tug at our hearts and draw those that need to be saved, draw those that need to rededicate their lives, draw those that need to refocus whatever the need is, that they can find the answer in the God-man right here, right now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.